<laughs> Got some bad news. Uh, we're preaching through the end of, uh, of Nehemiah today, and it's, it's something of a letdown. I don't know if you've noticed the thread which has been running through our worship service thus far this morning. There's been a lot which we've heard and participated in, which has done the job of calling our attention uh, toward our eternal hope, the glory that's going to be revealed to and in us. And it's good to have your attention on that, um, because what we're going to experience as we, um, as we read the end of Nehemiah's story uh, is disappointment. There's, there's no way. I feel like this is a mean sermon. Like, I'm, I'm the bearer of bad news, and I'm here today to tell you that your dog has been hit by a car. It's that kind of sermon. So, um, thanks for coming to church. It's, it's going to be good. Are you, are you like me? One of the most uh, frustrating things about uh, a good story, or a story which has been good, is an anticlimax. I don't like them. They're, uh, they're not my favorite thing. The tension builds in a good story. We make progress. Uh, and then what's meant to happen is we get to the great resolution that makes um, everything, everything resolve and good. Uh, but in an anticlimax, it goes the other way. An anticlimax makes everything that's come before it feel redundant. Why do we bother with that? That's, that's, that's not meaningful. Uh, I mean, like one of my um, favorite movies or sets of my favorite movies is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Do you remember the Lord of the Rings trilogy? It's pretty old now. Can you imagine how frustrating it would have been to get to the end of movie number three, 17 hours of your life in, however long it is to watch those three movies. Frodo and Sam have been trekking across everywhere, going through all this hardship to bring the ring to Mount Doom. And in the meantime, Aragorn is leading an assault on the gates of Mordor as a distraction to keep everyone's attention away from what the hobbits are doing at the volcano. And imagine if uh, Frodo and Sam are halfway up the mountain, somebody just walks up to them and says, guys, the battle went pretty well, we won. Don't worry about that ring thing, we don't need that anymore. It's a different movie, isn't it? It would be outrageous. Imagine if in Sleeping Beauty, the prince goes and gives her a kiss. It doesn't work. She's still asleep. I don't think that would be a popular film. Are you kidding me? What a waste. Well, here we are at the end of the book of Nehemiah, and the princess doesn't wake up. What we are about to read seems to completely undo everything that we've just been walking through for the last several months. Uh, it's really disappointing, but it turns out that it's also important because in that disappointment, there is heaps for us to learn. And so here we go, we start with a bit of a time jump, I'll read and then explain. We're in Nehemiah chapter 13, going from verse 1. It says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam uh, against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. 
While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. We'll hit pause there for a moment. This setup is, is, is put a little confusingly here in terms of chronology, so let me do my best to break it down for you. What we're reading about at the beginning of Nehemiah 13 is taking place in what is called the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Persia, believed to be somewhere around 433 BC. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah, when as cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah took the risk of asking for permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, took place in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. It has been 13 years since that conversation took place. And how much has happened in that time? Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem in secret to see a city which is in ruins, almost nobody living in it permanently, the people discouraged and cowed, their leaders corrupt and decadent, Nothing and no one to protect them from the hostile elements in the region. Then Nehemiah revealed himself. I'm going to lead a project to rebuild the walls and the gates. And immediately upon this announcement, the opposition begins. There was fear and discouragement from within. And there were taunts and threats from without. And there were two people in particular who came up as significant leaders of the opposition, the mouths that spoke the threats toward the Hebrews rebuilding the wall. Two men, a fellow by the name of Sanballat, the Horonite, and another guy by the name of Tobiah, the Ammonite. The relationship here with these two people, it turns out, is complicated because as we find out in chapter 13, Sanballat and Tobiah, even though they are foreigners, hostile to the worship of Yahweh, even with all of their threats and intimidation against God's work in Jerusalem, it turns out that they also just happen to be married into the family of the high priest. They are related and therefore significant and influential among the Hebrew nobility. Nonetheless, despite all the hardship, despite the impossible seeming task in front of them, the work continued with great courage and faith in the presence of significant hardship with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other, sleeping on the ground next to the construction project. They get it done. The wall was nearing completion, however many years later, and we come across a significant detour in the story. It wasn't just the walls that needed rebuilding. It wasn't just the city that was in ruin. The worship life of the nation was in disrepair as well. On a celebration day, nearing the end of the rebuilding work, the people asked that the Bible would be opened and explained to them. And that day, they discover how far they have fallen in terms of keeping their covenant that they had made with the Lord their God. But they respond to this conviction with repentance and faith, kickstarting what has been a significant period of spiritual renewal, 
Worship services lasting days, celebrations lasting weeks, a radical overhaul of the way in which the nation is run. Starting at the top with their leaders and working its way down to the people, under the leadership of Nehemiah, there has been a radical process of the people reorienting their lives around the word of God. This led eventually to their drafting a covenant renewal letter and signing their names at the bottom of it. There is a chapter of your Bible, which is just the names of the people who signed the letter. In this letter, they make three specific kinds of commitments about how they will obey God's word. They're committing to obey the whole thing, but there's three things in particular that they want to get their ancient highlighter, whatever they're using for that, sort of get out the scroll of the law. We're going to highlight three kinds of laws, and we are going to keep these laws. We as a church, we spent three weeks walking through that letter and delving deeply into how important all three of these commitments are. The people committed to stop intermarrying with the unbelieving nations as the law of Moses had commanded them. It was an issue of maintaining the worship of Yahweh uncorrupted. The people committed to keeping the Sabbath and not finding loopholes in order to do trade on it. And the people committed to maintaining their practice of the temple tithes to make sure that the work of the priests would be enabled so that the priests could represent the people before God, the most important thing in the whole of Israel. And then two weeks ago, Mike led us through looking at how at the end of all of this, they decide to wrap it up with a bow, a celebration day, dual parades making their way around the outside of the wall in opposite directions, meeting up at the temple at the other side, Nehemiah 12.43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Imagine the people in Bethany being like, what is that racket? There's the two parades going on. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. It's amazing. It's a story of redemption. And all of that personal risk, hardship, and effort that Nehemiah has gone through has been motivated by one very clear thing. He's pointed it out to us a few times. He describes himself as someone who fears the Lord. He knew that God was calling him to this. He knew that God was at work to bring about his promises. And so one step at a time, despite the hardship... Over a decade of faithful governance and by the grace of God, engineer type A personalities have shown themselves useful in the kingdom of God, surprising us all. It turns out you can administrate graciously. 
Now imagine you're Nehemiah, here at the end of chapter 12, lying in your bed that night after the parade. What sort of thoughts are running through your head as you fall asleep? Surely it's things like, it was worth it. Look what God has done. All of the hardship, all of the sacrifice, it mattered. Joy of joys. But now we jump forward in time. At some point, Nehemiah has had to return to Artaxerxes. As he promised back in chapter 2, we don't know how many times over the 10 years he made the trip, but it's a big one. It's a big deal. It's two months in each direction. So he goes from Jerusalem for some unknown period of time and possibly years later in duration, uh, but anything between six months and eight years, we just don't know, he has the opportunity to make the return trip to Jerusalem and see how things have gone in his absence. What does he find? It worked. The the people's heart has changed. The the nation has been revolutionized. It's all going, no. Do you remember that, that covenant renewal letter? The three commitments. How oddly specific the third commitment was about the chain of custody for all of the tithes and where they would be kept and how they would be provided for so that the priesthood could do their jobs. We get the first sign that something has gone wrong with the tithes. Tobiah the Ammonite, leader of the opposition, extended relative of the high priest, is back. Not just back. (laughs) Eliashib the priest has cleared out some of the temple storerooms where those tithes are meant to be going and has turned them into a sweet pad. (laughs) Can you imagine the hide hide on this guy? Tobiah, the opponent of Yahweh, is living in the temple. Let me get these holy, set-us-part-for-special-use temple vessels out of here. My boy needs a crib. That sounds like a good idea. Everybody's okay with this. What on earth? (laughs) What a betrayal. Have these people learned nothing? It gets worse. It's a great story. Nehemiah speaking in verse 8 says, And I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. They're going to get the priests in to do a a, a cleansing. You've had... You've had a Gentile in the temple. He's never meant to be there. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They've got to feed themselves and their families. And so I confronted the officials and said... Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. And then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. Sounds like deja vu to me. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable 
and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14, a prayer. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Something of a dummy spit, isn't it? It's a glorious dummy spit. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Another prayer. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. We're not done. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, these Gentiles. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. He's, he's lost his mind to the point where he's not pulling out his own hair, do you understand? He's grabbing other dudes and ripping the hair out of their head. What are you doing? Have we learnt nothing? It's, actually, it's what happened up here. <laughs> I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood 
and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits near my ends, remember me, O my God, for my good. The end. <laughs> Isn't that the worst? Remember back with me to the covenant renewal letter. We will keep the law. Three very specific commandments. We will stop marrying outside the faith. Nope. We will keep the Sabbath. Nope. We will not neglect the ministry of the temple through our tithes and our offerings. Double nope. The Ammonite is living in the room where the offerings are meant to be going. There is not a single part of that covenant renewal letter which was still being kept by the end of the decade. Not a one. Not a one of those promises was kept. Nehemiah turns his back for a moment, and when he turns around again, the entire thing has, has fallen apart, like leaving the pencils on the table with your toddlers and going to clean something in another room, only to discover a beautiful montage has been drawn on the walls. So Nehemiah loses his ever-loving mind. <laughs> Some might argue he goes a little too far. I think at the same time, we can see where he's coming from. Put yourself into Nehemiah's headspace that night. What is running through his mind? 13 years of my life wasted. We have accomplished nothing. The only thing, the only thing that could make this story any worse would be if the wall fell over. That's the only thing still standing. What's his prayer life look like? Lord, did you really send me here to be a part of this? For what? What a waste. And you see, the reason why this is worth reading is because you and I have to answer all of those same questions. What was the point of all this? Have we as a church just wasted three months of our lives making our way through this book? Was there anything worthwhile in there? What do we learn from this complete titanic of a failure? Let me bring a couple of things to your attention. The most important thing that we learn in the story of Nehemiah is that this isn't home. This fallen world that we live in is, in fact, disappointing. But it's not home. And that knowledge gives perspective to us to know how to judge which things actually matter whilst we are here. Understand this. This kind of collapse is going to happen in all of our lives and all of our ministries. We will work hard to build things up. Isn't that what we do? We take our energy, our effort, our money, we take years of our lives 
and we do what we can to build good things as people of faith. What do we build? We hope that here as a church that we are building a healthy congregation, spiritually healthy, devoted to the Lord, walking in faithfulness with Him. Maybe some of you have committed a portion of your lives to growing a ministry program like a youth group or a camp like we've just had or a holiday program. Maybe you're part of a Bible study or a small group. Maybe we grow outreach opportunities or our carols events, the Alpha Ministries. Some of you are doing Bible reading one-to-one and you're discipling someone. As parents, we raise our kids hoping to see them walk with the Lord. And we can come to a place where our sense of accomplishment and our sense of security and our sense of satisfaction is in the structures we create, the routines we are walking in, or even the outcomes of our efforts. If what I do succeeds, it was worthwhile... If what I'm in charge of is thriving, I'm not wasting my life. And then, inevitably, with the march of time, the things which we build decay. This church is 150-odd years old. That's pretty great. In one sense, it stood the test of time. The people who worked for so hard for so long to get it going... I think would be pretty happy with 150 years of it still going. If they were to meet us now, they would see a pretty healthy church. I can imagine they'd think to themselves, worthwhile. It was worth the effort. It took them decades to get this place going. Does that mean that this church has had 150 years of health? (laughs) No. (laughs) Absolutely not. There have been long periods of significant decline and stagnation. There has been infighting and bitterness and factions at various points in this church's history. Uh, We learnt at the 150th celebration from one of the pastors that in the 80s, the church almost closed. There was a lot of pressure to close up shop and to hand the building over. In this fallen world, nothing we build is permanent. And nothing we build is perfect. It is not a question of if, but when. When will the structures we build become corrupted? And so if you set your hopes on perfect and permanent in the efforts that you make, you will eventually be disappointed. You will be discouraged, perhaps catastrophically so. Our hope has to be elsewhere. Has to be elsewhere. And once we are willing to place our hope elsewhere, we find an unshakable encouragement. Jesus told us about wealth, for example. He told us not to store it up here where moth and rust destroy and thieves can steal. Rather, to pursue riches in the life to come where moths and rust are done. 
where the thief no longer steals. Nehemiah may have looked at the apostasy of Israel and concluded, it's hopeless, what a waste. Or he could remain aware that all of our actions matter here and in the life to come. That the period of revival which he oversaw was glorifying to God. And that while many fell away, there were some who came through that period of time forever changed. And that every single one of those people are precious before God. He could have been aware that his personal faithfulness to his God matters and through faith is well-pleasing to him. Did you hear his constant prayer? Remember me, O God, for what I have done. It's a wise one. It is the prayer of a man walking in faithfulness. God will not judge us by our fruitfulness. Because that is his problem, not yours. But even within grace, he absolutely rewards us for our faithfulness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This isn't home. Put your hope where it belongs. Let's give our attention to one last thing. The other thing that we learn here is that the story of Nehemiah isn't about Nehemiah. There isn't, this isn't a story about one man's faithfulness. A call to be like him. That's in there for sure. That's, that's a part of it. But there is a bigger message here that we must not miss. And when we see it, it makes more sense. The bigger message of this story is the story of a world which is so hopelessly broken that even the best of us fail. It's the story of a world where good things don't last, where victories seem fleeting. It is the story of a world which is hopeless to rescue itself. Notice the depth of the problem. How through the generations, the same sins and faults echo and repeat endlessly and ad nauseum. We don't need good human leaders like Nehemiah to come and be the solution to the world's problems. To believe that, to place your hope there, is to underestimate the size of the problem. We need a supernatural rescuer. The whole thing needs to be remade from the ground up. Sin needs to be dealt with and defeated. And Nehemiah is the story of a big, faithful, patient God who looks at us with all of our catastrophic flaws and who is patient and generous with us beyond measure. Why doesn't he just give up? Why hasn't he destroyed us already? If this is what the human race is, if this is the best of us, if this is God's covenant people and what we are capable of, 
He doesn't. Rather, it's the story of the God who is moving purposefully through the pages of history to build a people for himself. A people who will be his very own and will live with him so that he can be their God and they can be his people. That kingdom which God is building is made up entirely of broken, hopeless fools. That's the only kind of people that exist. In preserving Zion, in rebuilding the temple, in getting those walls going despite the odds, God has been moving in the story of Nehemiah in such a way as to keep his promise to Abraham of descendants more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach. He will be with his people. He will make a way. And for that to happen, he needs to send the Redeemer, who is going to offer himself as the perfect, once and for all, sacrifice for sin. And so if nothing else comes out of Nehemiah's life, God got the walls up. And we get Jesus. Nehemiah's life, as unlikely as it may seem here in Nehemiah 13, by God's grace, forms a link in the chain of history that leads directly to the birth of the Savior. To his crucifixion on the cross. To his internment in the grave. And to his resurrection. That Savior would arrive in the right place at the right time, would offer himself as a sacrifice and rise again. And so the end of Nehemiah isn't a setback for God and his great redemption story. Do you understand? It's just more proof that that Savior is necessary. That same God is present here today. He is at work in your life and your ministry. He is at work in your efforts and your energy. We have no idea which little details of our lives will echo down through history and matter at the end. We have no idea how much they will matter. But walking in hope and worshipful fear, we have the confidence that we will be able to look back on a life lived well. A life which is pleasing to God. A life which mattered. The work that God is doing is bigger than your lifetime or mine. And if my pet project falls over, that's a setback for me, not for him. And yet, in his grace, your life can echo into the rest of the story in surprising ways. Because God is at work, your life matters in every small detail.
our God's plan will survive setbacks. In fact, the setbacks are part of the plan. He's that sovereign. How frustrating that must be (laughs) for his opponents. And how glorious a hope for us. Let's pray. Who is like you, our God? For anyone else but you. The story of Nehemiah 13 would be a great tragedy from which there would be no recovering. It's not just Nehemiah 13. It's every year of history. (laughs) The imperfect and the impermanent of this world defeats us. But it doesn't defeat you. Who is like you, our God? Who else can turn defeat into victory? Who else can turn sin into redemption? Who else can turn grief into joy? But you can. And we know it. You did it then. And you are doing it now. Father, our hope and our prayer is that everything for which you have given us responsibility would go well. We want a thriving church. We want worshipping families. We want the lost to hear and to believe and to come home. We want justice to rule and reign without opposition. Father, you are our hope. And heaven is our home. And so while we continue to fight for those things today, help our security and our joy to be in its proper place. Give us the hope that survives setbacks. Give us the life which survives the grave. Give us grace and mercy and forgiveness and restore us, our God, and remember us for what we have done in faith. We pray in Jesus' name.